Welcome back to Antisocial Studies. Before we start, I want to mention three things. One, I'm recovering from COVID, so if my voice has a little extra gravitas, that's why. Second, if you want to support my podcast, the easiest way is to share it with like three people who might like it too. But the second easiest way is to join my Patreon at patreon.com slash antisocial studies. And finally, this episode is brought to you in part by the Choices Program, which just so happens to be like my favorite teaching resource of all time. Seriously, I tracked them down and asked them to collaborate because these lesson plans and teaching materials have gotten me through over a decade of teaching. The Choices Program creates amazing materials that connect history with current issues. So if you're a teacher listening right now, like these are print and go lesson plans. Y'all know what I mean. Check them out at choices.edu and use the code ANTI-SS for a 15% discount on your purchase. All right, let's get started. Before we move on in time from LBJ to Nixon, I want to pause. So today we're talking about civil rights and protest movements of the 1960s and 70s, or free at last? This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glinkler. Settle in and let's go back in time. Some important general context for essentially all of the different movements we're going to talk about is the importance of young people. Remember the 1950s, conformity, suburbia? Yeah, not everyone loved that, especially young people and artists. So by the 1960s, the oldest baby boomers were entering their rebellious teenage slash early adulthood years. You know, like the era of your life where your literal brain chemistry is telling you to push against established structures in an attempt to determine who you are, often in opposition to what you are not. I'll never be like you, dad, that sort of energy. By 1970, 58% of the U.S. population is going to be under the age of 35. And importantly, many of those young people went to college throughout the 1960s, often the first in their family to do so. In non-chaotic times, a young adult who leaves their small town or suburb and goes off to college is going to come home over Thanksgiving break ready to spar with the older generations. But in the 1960s and 70s, that instinct was backed by some legitimately terrifying and infuriating developments that made it totally reasonable to question the established power's insistence that the U.S. was the greatest country in the world. Between the civil rights movement, second wave feminism, the beginnings of the sexual revolution, and new understandings about the LGBTQ community, like the list goes on. Oh yeah, and a questionable at best war in Vietnam that's sending a lot of these young people off to the jungle. Oh, right. And a looming threat of nuclear apocalypse. So yeah, young people were stressed. I wonder what that felt like. This youth movement was often centered on college campuses, and some of their early movements in the 1960s were pushing for free speech on their campuses and divesting their university's financial interests from the military industry. UC Berkeley became the heart of the free speech movement when the university restricted students' rights to distribute literature and recruit volunteers for political causes on campus. A 1964 sit-in during which 600 police officers arrested 700 protesters. Wow, student-teacher ratio. We got like student-cop ratio. It's almost one-to-one. This set off nationwide strikes and sit-ins across college campuses led by students and faculty. And there's a historical document that sums up the general feelings of many young people in the 60s better than anything I could write. It's a 1962 manifesto by the SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, and it's called the Port Huron Statement. If you're a high school teacher, I highly recommend you read this with your kids. It resonates every year. 
Here are some excerpts. And again, this is written by young people for young people. This is early 1962. Kennedy has not been assassinated yet. The Vietnam War has not escalated yet. Quote, We are people of this generation, bred in at least modest comfort, housed now in universities, looking uncomfortably to the world we inherit. They go on to point out that although the U.S. was the, quote, wealthiest and strongest country in the world, now their comfort was penetrated by events too troubling to dismiss. They list out Jim Crow racial bigotry and the looming threat of atomic war. Quote, while these and other problems either directly oppressed us or rankled our consciences and became our own subjective concerns, we began to see complicated and disturbing paradoxes in our surrounding America. The declaration, all men are created equal, rang hollow before the facts of Negro life in the South and the big cities of the North. The proclaimed peaceful intentions of the United States contradicted its economic and military investments in the Cold War status quo. These young people go on to call for greater political participation, a more active government serving communities, economic regulation, and opportunity for those at the bottom to have meaningful work. It's a lot. The 1960s often gets oversimplified. Young activists distilled down into hippies who want peace, love, and rock and roll. But the underlying counterculture of the 1960s was an incredibly vibrant, academic, and complex breeding ground for a whole new generation of activists and leaders inspired to bring the U.S. out of its conformity and complacency and into a modern, more just world. So on that note, the civil rights movement. So remember that the civil rights movement has been going on for, well, I mean, as long as black people were treated as less than by white people, so like all of American history. But this main thrust of the 20th century civil rights era begins really with World War II and the double V campaign against racism at home and abroad. And it tracks fairly closely with Dr. King's life and career. Remember, he rises to prominence in Montgomery in the 1950s. We left off two episodes ago in 1963 with the Birmingham protests and violence, the March on Washington, and Kennedy's assassination. And remember that before JFK was killed, he finally had called for a National Civil Rights Act to address racial segregation. Now add in the Johnson treatment and continuous coordinated efforts by Black activists, and all of that culminates in the Civil Rights Act of 1964, 101 years after the Emancipation Proclamation. No hyperbole, this is the most comprehensive civil rights legislation ever. It made segregation illegal in public places, and this included, importantly, privately owned public spaces like restaurants and movie theaters. It empowered the Justice Department to more easily bring lawsuits to force desegregation in schools 10 years after Brown versus the board said they should already be doing that. It required employers to end discrimination in the workplace, partly by establishing the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, and it banned similar discrimination on religion, national origin, and critically for other movements on the basis of sex. Not since the 14th Amendment have we had such an enormous paradigm shift for equality, and almost all modern rights questions are settled at least partly by referring to the 1964 Civil Rights Act. 
Now, I don't think I need to tell you that all discrimination didn't just magically disappear when LBJ signed the Civil Rights Act, but this legislation empowered activists to begin challenging discrimination on almost all fronts, now backed by the federal government. One thing the Civil Rights Act didn't address directly was voting. Remember, Jim Crow voting restrictions had almost a century to morph into sneaky loopholes that didn't outright say Black people couldn't vote. The movie Selma honestly does the best job of showing all these restrictions, but some examples are maybe in one county you had to pass a literacy test administered by a white official to register to vote. And by the way, these literacy tests, you should look them up. It is not like, can you read English? This is like, can you name like your federal judge? Can you tell me the date that senators are inaugurated? Like, it's wild. In some counties, you had to have an already registered voter vouch for you before you could register. So what do you do if the only registered voters are white people? You might have to pay a poll tax, although the 24th Amendment, also ratified in 1964, eliminated the poll tax, but only in federal elections, not in state and local elections. Even if you did manage to register to vote, white supremacist militias might just kill you outright or intimidate you to the point that you don't go to the polls. And then, even if you cast your vote, who knows if it's actually going to be counted. The list goes on. So with segregation officially banned by the federal government, voting rights became the next frontier. And while the push for desegregation centered in Birmingham, now the push for voting rights revolved around Selma, Alabama. Why Selma? Well, it was still in Alabama, home to a horrifically racist governor, George Wallace. And the Selma sheriff, Jim Clark, was a known racist who could be counted on to respond with violence. He had over 3,000 black people arrested during a peaceful protest, including school children. And in Selma County, most importantly, black people represented a majority of the population and yet only 3% of registered voters. This was as clear cut as race-based voter discrimination could be. Famously led by Hosea Williams and a young John Lewis, hundreds of mostly black activists planned to march from Selma all the way to the state capital of Montgomery, 50 miles along mostly rural roads filled with white supremacists. At the first march, they didn't even make it across the Edmund Pettus Bridge out of Selma. They were met by Sheriff Clark and his police force and were beaten and chased down by police on horseback in front of cameras broadcasting to national television. Known as Bloody Sunday, the footage shocked many Americans watching, and when another march was organized, after being sanctioned essentially by the Johnson administration, people from all over the country came to join as the march finally made it to their destination, this time led by Dr. King. Eight days later, LBJ proposed a new voting rights law on national television, and just five months after the Selma marches, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was passed. The law outright suspended discriminatory practices like literacy tests, but more importantly, it authorized the Justice Department and the Attorney General to monitor local and state election statistics and send federal examiners to investigate instances of potential voter discrimination. So federal officials could now be called on to register voters, bypassing local officials who often refuse to register black people, or even just take over the administration of elections if necessary. By the end of 1965, the same year as the Selma marches, 250,000 new black voters had been registered, backed by the Justice Department. The Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act were monumental. But here's the problem. They of course didn't solve everything. But they were also expansive enough that casual observers, i.e. mostly white people, kind of felt like the issue was then settled. 
we did it. We ended Jim Crow. We desegregated. Schools are going to get integrated. Black people can vote and run for office. There's definitely no other systemic issues lurking that need to be discussed. Also, we're tired and we're ramping up a war in Vietnam. So in the wake of these two landmark acts, civil rights activists were stuck with a strategic dilemma. Act two, what now? After 1965, the movement struggled to identify a clear next focus. Segregation and voter discrimination were incredibly complex, but also kind of simple. You could see racial segregation. You could quantify voter discrimination. Most people at least agreed that that problem existed and that they were racially motivated. But in the second half of the 1960s, civil rights leaders shifted their focus to trickier societal issues like poverty and unemployment. While 75% of Black Americans lived in large cities, white flight out of those cities had left the, quote, inner city destitute. The average income of a Black family was 55% of that of the average white family, and half of all Black Americans lived in poverty. On top of that, you had growing police forces patrolling these so-called inner cities, linking poverty and blackness with crime. Just five days after the Voting Rights Act was passed, the Watts riot erupted in Los Angeles over anger at police brutality. It took six days, 14,000 National Guard members, and 1,500 police officers to end the riots, and many other black neighborhoods in major cities followed suit with protests and riots calling out the poverty and brutality facing many black people. It's at this point that I would like to remind you of this kind of age-old strategy discussion that we talked about in a previous episode that was really epitomized by W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. If you remember, Booker T. Washington took a more strategic, pragmatic approach. Remember, he was born into slavery, although he was very, very young when emancipation occurred. But Booker T. Washington's whole argument was Black people need to focus on economic security and economic independence because only then will white people take them seriously. Du Bois said, no, 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 screw that. We need complete political rights. We need the right to vote. We need the right to education. That's what we deserve and everything else will come after that. So this is really that strategy debate coming back to fruition, right? They've gotten desegregation, at least officially. They've gotten voting rights, but they're recognizing that there's still a lot of economic issues that need to be resolved. Okay. Dr. King followed suit, right? He shifted his focus to economic rights. At one point, he moved into a slum apartment in Chicago specifically to call attention to the housing crisis. Black activists marched through all white suburbs of Chicago and were met with hostility to rival the Jim Crow South. What was clear was that economic issues were going to be much more difficult for civil rights activists. It's one thing for a white person to agree that a black person should go to the same restaurant or should be able to vote. It's another thing to get a white person to agree that black citizens might need some direct economic support to put them on a level playing field with white Americans. This was often perceived as unfair government handouts and just a direct threat to the wealth and privilege of the white population. So what do you do as a black activist once you've maybe reached the end of your tense alliance with white moderates? Well, that's the real question of the late 1960s. Dr. King attempted to bring poor white people into the cause, coinciding with LBJ's war on poverty and trying to create a new coalition based on socioeconomic class. But he's going to find that a racial prejudice was often much deeper than class solidarity. Nixon and the new conservatives are about to enter the chat, by the way. 
So another branch of the movement decided that the time to collaborate with and appease white people might be over. Black people are going to need to take the future into their own hands. Black power groups preached black nationalism and economic independence, basically divest from the white economy and support black owned businesses and stay within your black community. They adopted traditionally African cultural symbols like the dashiki or afros or other traditional black hairstyles. Groups like the Black Panthers decided that they couldn't rely on the government to defend or represent their community, and so they asserted their Second Amendment right and armed themselves to monitor local police. I mean, they also organized citywide free breakfast programs for black kids on their way to school, but no one really talks about that. We focus on them with their guns. And fun fact, not so fun fact, the NRA actively campaigned against open carry laws in this time period after the Black Panthers began patrolling the streets of Oakland heavily armed. So it's at this point that we should pause and talk about Malcolm X. I've done other episodes, and I'll probably do more in the future, on Dr. King and Malcolm X. Like, check out Season 2, Episode 2. It's called Martin, Malcolm, and Colin. But for now, here are the basics of what I really want you to know about Malcolm X. His life and career is pretty sharply divided into two eras, when he was a member of the Nation of Islam and after he left the Nation of Islam in 1964. The Nation of Islam is an overtly racist organization that preaches black superiority, anti-white bigotry, anti-Semitism, the list goes on. They claim to be part of Islam, but most of the Muslim world does not claim them back. So while representing the Nation of Islam, like Malcolm X referred to white people as the devil, and he often advocated violence to reshape the racial landscape in favor of black people. This is probably the Malcolm X you've heard of. If you learned about Malcolm X in school at all, it was probably just as a character foil to Dr. King, right? You probably learned this overly simplistic, Dr. King was about peace and Malcolm X was about violence. Uh, It's a lot more complicated than that. Again, go check out that whole episode I did for a way deeper dive. But in 1964, Malcolm X left the Nation of Islam and he became a Sunni Muslim, which is the majority branch of Islam. And this is when Malcolm X really becomes a true competitor, for lack of a better word, to Dr. King. Like, a true other option for a lot of Black people. Before, when he's part of the Nation of Islam, he's part of this fringe group. The vast majority of Black people honestly aren't taking him that seriously. And obviously, the white population, it's not that they're not taking him seriously, they're just actively afraid of him. After he leaves the Nation of Islam in 1964 is when he starts to get a lot more national attention and people start to really take notice. In this year, Malcolm X gave a speech called The Ballot or the Bullet that I think is one of the most impressive examples of like extemporaneous persuasive speaking in American history. I'm just going to play you some kind of long excerpts from the audio because he is such a charismatic public speaker. And I mean, I want to be really clear, even though he's not with the Nation of Islam anymore, Malcolm X's rhetoric is still incredibly divisive, which you will hear. He is basically the antithesis of Dr. King, and he actually takes some shots at Dr. King throughout this speech. But I want you to listen to this and think about if you were a young Black person in the 1960s who has been fighting this fight, your parents have been fighting this fight, their parents, so on and so forth, and you're tired. And I want you to imagine listening to this man speak and thinking about how this would resonate with you. By the way, when you hear the crowd, just know that it is a mixture of cheers and boos. He's speaking to a group of religious leaders from all different faiths, but a lot of them Christian leaders who are also supporters of Dr. King. Whether you are, whether you are a Christian, 
We all have the same problem. They don't hang you because you're a Baptist. They hang you you because you're black. They don't attack me because I'm a Muslim. They attack me because I'm black. They attack all of us for the same reason. All of us catch hell from the same enemy. We're all in the same bag, in the same boat. We suffer political oppression, economic exploitation, and social degradation. All of them from the same enemy. The government has failed us. You can't deny that. Anytime you live in the 20th century, 1964, and you walking around here singing, we shall overcome, the government has failed. This is part of what's wrong with you. You do too much singing. Today it's time to stop singing and start swinging. Why is America, why does this loom to be such an explosive political year? Because this is the year of politics. This is the year when all of the white politicians are going to come into the Negro community. You've never seen them until election time. You can't blame them until election time. 22 million black victims of Americanism are waking up and they're gaining a new political consciousness, becoming politically mature. And as they become, uh, develop this political maturity, they're able to see the recent trends in these uh, political elections. They see that the whites are so evenly divided that every time they vote, uh, the race is so close, they have to go back and count the votes all over again. And that, that, which means that any block, any minority that has a block of votes that stick together is in a strategic position. Either way you go, that's who gets it. You're, you're in a position to determine who go to the White House and who stay in the doghouse. This is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet. It's liberty or death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. America today finds herself in a unique situation. Historically, revolutions are bloody. Oh, yes, they are. They have never had a bloodless revolution or a nonviolent revolution. That don't happen even in Hollywood. You don't have a revolution in which you love your enemy. And you don't have a revolution in which you are begging the system of exploitation to integrate you into it. Revolutions overturn systems. Revolutions destroy systems. A revolution is bloody. But America is in a unique position. She's the only country in history in a position actually to become involved in a bloodless revolution. The, Re the Russian Revolution was bloody. Chinese Revolution was bloody. French Revolution was bloody. Cuban Revolution was bloody. And there was nothing more bloody than the Re American Revolution. But today, this country can become involved in a revolution that won't take bloodshed. All she's got to do is give the black man in this country everything he's doing. Everything. 
Now, I hope by now you can understand why a speech like this and a message like this would be incredibly persuasive, especially to a lot of Black Americans in the middle of the 1960s. What Malcolm X is essentially saying is kind of what W.E.B. Du Bois was saying like half a century ago. We've waited long enough. We don't need to keep waiting. We don't need to keep compromising and appeasing. We need our full and equal rights now. And I'm basically putting the ball in white people's court. It's up to you. You have the power. You can decide to give us our rights peacefully and we will be peaceful or not. And at this point, why not start fighting? Again, this is the Malcolm X that really starts to kind of compete, again, for lack of a better word, with Dr. King, right? Before, when he was part of the Nation of Islam and he was really just preaching full-on hate, it was really easy to dismiss him. But now there's a lot of Black people who are looking and saying, well, you know, it's been almost 10 years since Montgomery, right? It's been a lot of time. How much longer are we going to wait? Remember, Dr. King's message of turn the other cheek and love your enemy and all that sort of stuff. Ooh, that's a really hard sell. And all of a sudden, Malcolm X is coming with a pretty good counter sell, if that's a word. So it's at this point that I, Emily, would like to propose a thesis statement. This is me as a historian making my own opinion and assertion about history. In the mid-1960s, the federal government passed landmark civil rights legislation as a way to appease a Black population that was threatening to shift their strategy away from nonviolent moderation. Here's what I mean. The traditional textbook narrative has been that nonviolence led by Dr. King won the civil rights movement. I think that's true, but I don't think it would have been nearly as effective if there hadn't been a legitimate alternative of potential violence. Malcolm X and many Black Power activists did not propose violence for the sake of violence, but they did often keep violence as an option on the table. And LBJ, who Malcolm X called, by the way, quote, a Southern cracker, and other government officials, they heard Malcolm X, and they saw the growing restlessness of Black activists who had been fighting for decades, and really, like, fighting for centuries. Malcolm X did not get the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act passed, but he did play a role. Essentially, the government was motivated to work with Dr. King, who, again, was very unpopular at the time, especially with the federal government. He was being monitored by the FBI. Like, he was not just, like, getting open invites to, like, come and chat with Congress, right? But the government was motivated all of a sudden to work with Dr. King as the lesser of two evils, rather than risk a potentially violent revolution from more radical groups. So both had an important part to play. Malcolm X was assassinated in 1965, just really one year after he'd left the Nation of Islam and started gaining a lot of national traction. He was assassinated by members of the Nation of Islam, who were angry at him for leaving and speaking out against their organization. And many of the Black Power groups that we know of formed really in his wake throughout the late 1960s. Another movie I highly recommend is Judas and the Black Messiah. It's really good at portraying this kind of late 1960s era of the Black Power movement attempting to create a multiracial coalition in Chicago. But it is true that the majority of civil rights activists maintained nonviolence as their dominant philosophy. And the kind of mostly unified golden age of the Black civil rights movement really effectively ended in 1968 when Dr. King was assassinated. He was in Memphis to support Black sanitation workers who were on strike. 
And he was also planning a poor people's campaign to lobby the government for billions of dollars to fight poverty and unemployment. This included another march on Washington for that summer. Dr. King was assassinated by James Earl Ray, a white supremacist criminal, on April 4, 1968. And the night before, Dr. King had given a speech where he famously declared, All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. And so just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. some difficult days ahead but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop I don't mind like anybody I would like to live a long life longevity has its place but I'm not concerned about that now I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Dr. King was assassinated the next day. If activists had a strategy dilemma after the landmark Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, then they had a full-on crisis in 1968. Various groups had been splintering off really since 1965, but with Dr. King gone, there was really no one with the same unifying voice that could keep the movement somewhat on the same page. And this honestly is the era of the civil rights movement that the U.S. has been in kind of for the last 50 years or so. Many people, especially white Americans, were ready to move on now that we had, quote, solved the most outwardly racist parts of the system. Explicit racial segregation and voter disenfranchisement were gone-ish. And communities of color began to use their newly protected societal mobility and voice in politics to focus on issues ranging from housing discrimination to job and educational opportunities. 
And now that we're looking back at the beginning of, I think, a new era for civil rights brought on most clearly by the murder of George Floyd, it's clear that the activism of the 1960s and early 70s didn't go away. It rippled outward, trying to address the multitude of other elements of our society that are still impacted by 350 years of a racial caste system. There's so much more we could talk about. But for now, let's turn our attention to the ladies. Act 3. No one likes a mad woman. The other paradigm-shifting movement from this era was the women's rights movement, also known as second wave feminism. Remember that the first wave had been the suffrage movement sparked by Seneca Falls in 1848, culminating in the victory for mostly white women of the 19th Amendment. Since then, the women's movement got a little sidelined by global catastrophes like the Great Depression and World War II, but just like the double V campaign for black people during the war, World War II birthed See what I did there? A new generation of feminist activists. Now, they weren't all Rosie the Riveters. Rosie's the Riveter? I don't know how to pluralize that. Some of these women were daughters who got to go to college in the post-war boom. But still, why did the feminist movement surge in the mid-1960s? And as always, there are a lot of factors, but here are some of the critical ones. Number one, in 1960, the FDA approved the birth control pill. All of a sudden, a woman had infinitely more control over how and if she became a mother. Number two, in 1963, the Commission on the Status of Women, headed by Eleanor in her last role before her death, highlighted many of the issues facing women and created a network of feminist activists who became increasingly politically connected with each other. This culminated in the Equal Pay Act, which in theory abolished wage disparity on the basis of sex. I mean, again, just because we have a law that says it doesn't mean it still doesn't happen. Wages for women overall have gone up, but they're still less than what men make, and even more dramatically so if you're a woman of color. There also weren't a lot of other laws that were in place to really support women who were trying to expose gender discrimination. More on that in a second. And the third reason why the second wave feminist movement really got started in the mid-1960s was that also in 1963, Betty Friedan published The Feminine Mystique. By the way, what a crazy year 1963 was. Think about it. You have the Birmingham protests, the March on Washington, JFK's assassination. It's a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. Anyway. A divorced mother, Friedan interviewed many female college graduates, and she started to put together a theory about a common experience that a lot of them were dealing with each of them on their own, isolated in the home. And before I read an excerpt, I know this is not something I need to say out loud, but I just want to remind us, this is like pre-internet, obviously. This is an era of time when if you are a woman whose whole life is really in your home, your relationships are mostly individuals. You might have, you have your friends, you have your family, you have your book club. And even then, like, you don't have any sort of other outlet. You don't have a bigger community. And so what Betty Friedan really discovered from talking one-on-one with a lot of these women was that a lot of them secretly were dealing with these really intense feelings that she describes in her book that then when other women read it, they can go, oh my gosh, I feel the exact same way. Okay, here's an excerpt. The problem lay buried, unspoken for many years in the minds of American women. It was a strange stirring, a sense of dissatisfaction, 
a yearning that women suffered in the middle of the 20th century in the United States. Each suburban wife struggled with it alone, as she made the beds, shopped for groceries, matched slipcover material, ate peanut butter sandwiches with her children, chauffeured Cub Scouts and brownies, lay beside her husband at night, she was afraid to ask even of herself the silent question, is this all? Sometimes a woman would say, I feel empty somehow, incomplete. Or she would say, I feel as if I don't exist. Sometimes she blotted out the feeling with a tranquilizer. If the woman had a problem in the 1950s and 60s, she knew that something must be wrong with her marriage or with herself. Other women were satisfied with their lives, she thought. What kind of a woman was she if she did not feel this mysterious fulfillment waxing the kitchen floor? She was so ashamed to admit her dissatisfaction that she never knew how many other women shared it. But on an April morning in 1959, I heard a mother of four having coffee with four other mothers in a suburban development 15 miles from New York, say in a tone of quiet desperation, the problem. And the others knew without words that she was not talking about a problem with her husband or her children or her home. Suddenly they realized they all shared the same problem, the problem that has no name. They began hesitantly to talk about it. Later, after they had picked up their children at nursery school and taken them home to nap, Two of the women cried in sheer relief just to know they were not alone. Needless to say, this book struck a chord with many housewives who wanted more, but hadn't been able to reconcile those feelings with what society had been telling them they should be grateful for, a home, kids, and a husband who takes care of her financially. Now, second wave feminists had a similar challenge to black activists after the elimination, on paper at least, of like racial segregation and voter discrimination. I mean, in 1960, women technically had a lot of the same political constitutional rights as men. They could vote, run for office, they could go to school, although not all schools accepted women. What women were pushing up against now was socioeconomic discrimination. In many states, they still couldn't open a bank account on their own. They couldn't get loans. They could get fired for being pregnant. They could get paid less than a man because, I mean, he had a family to support. And I guess she was just there as a fun hobby. Women struggled to get divorces. They could be raped by their husbands with no recourse. I could go on. And these are all horrific. But they are based way more in societal expectations around gender. A woman is, air quotes, supposed to submit to a man. A pregnant woman is delicate and shouldn't be working. A woman should be home with her kids. These are much more entrenched in our evolutionary psyche than a woman's right to vote, for example. I mean, hell, men just got the right to vote for their government like a few seconds ago in the grand scheme of things. So all of this socioeconomic discrimination that second wave feminists were going to fight against was trickier, murkier, and easier for men to deflect. But a key moment came with the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Just like abolitionists and women's rights activists often crossed barriers and worked together in the 19th century, feminists gained victories thanks to Black civil rights action as well. The same legislation that broke down historic racial barriers also, crucially, included amendments to protect women against discrimination. I guess Congress finally learned its lesson from the 15th Amendment, right? Like, if you're opening up the Google Doc to get rid of discrimination on the basis of race, just takes a few extra edits to add, and on the basis of sex. Title VII of the Civil Rights Act outlawed job discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, national origin, and sex. There it is. 
And this all of a sudden opens the door for women to begin challenging employment discrimination in federal courts. Side note, very recently, like in current times, the Supreme Court has clarified its interpretation of the meaning sex in this context, and they have ruled that it includes sexual orientation and gender status, meaning based on this same 1964 law, a person now cannot be fired because they are gay, lesbian, transgender, etc. It's a very big deal. Now, although the Civil Rights Act established the EEOC in theory to investigate employment discrimination, feminist activists knew immediately that enforcement of these new laws would be another issue. Dozens of activists founded the National Organization for Women, or NOW, as the main political and legal organization to push for women's rights. It's basically like the NAACP, but for women. The founding members were actually kind of surprisingly diverse. In addition to Betty Friedan, they included many black women, and they were one of the first women's rights organizations to fully include and try to consider the unique struggles of women of color. Two significant founders were Polly Murray, a black civil rights lawyer who we now would understand as transgender, and Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress. She'll be elected after they found now. Now, here's an excerpt from Now's founding statement of purpose written by Betty Friedan and Polly Murray. Quote, The time has come to confront with concrete action the conditions that now prevent women from enjoying the equality of opportunity and freedom of choice, which is their right as individual Americans and as human beings. Of course, another notable activist and face of the movement was Gloria Steinem, who was the editor of Now's Miss magazine. And honestly, like at this point, you should probably just pause and go watch Mrs. America on Hulu. I'll wait. All right, so isn't Kate Blanchett like a revelation? Anyway, so Gloria Steinem served as somewhat of a poster child for the modern woman. She was independent, unmarried, childless by choice, beautiful, smart. She was carving out her own life. But this same modern woman was terrifying to many who saw second wave feminists as another sign of the declining morality and general social chaos of the late 1960s. Like, they're busing black kids into our schools, young men are growing their hair out and refusing to serve their country, and now women want to have sex and never get married or have kids? What is happening? Make a note of this reaction. We'll come back to it in the next episode when we talk about the new conservative movement. I also want to mention that while second wave feminism was more inclusive of women of color than previous eras had been, like remember how many suffragettes were willing to work within white supremacist power structures to get their right to vote secured, I mean, it was far from perfect, right? Leaders of the movement varied, especially in their acceptance of queer women. Some, like Betty Friedan, were openly anti-lesbian. She called them the Lavender Menace, a phrase that was taken by lesbian feminists and turned into their own organization, pushing to be included. By the way, any Swifties out there, lavender is a color that has been associated with lesbians for a very long time in history, which is why some in the Taylor Swift community were very excited to see a song on her new album called Lavender Haze. That's a podcast for another day. There were many heterosexual feminists who believed that any association with the LGBTQ community would weaken their overall movement and make others less likely to support them. The debate was really similar in some ways to debates within the Black civil rights movement about to what extent should they try to gain the support of like white moderates, right? The mainstream movement was constantly having to think about what an average white American would be willing to accept. Dr. King was kind of on the edge of, quote, acceptability, but someone like Malcolm X or the Black Panthers was out of the question. Similarly, many white feminists struggled to be fully inclusive. And for a lot of them, this stemmed just from personal prejudice. But for others, it was a strategic choice to try to not alienate middle America by forcing them to also accept 
lesbian women, for example. I'm going to talk more about the LGBTQ rights movements in future episodes, I promise. Back to the big picture movement, what did NOW want? Their Bill of Rights advocated that the government actually enforce Title VII, prohibiting sex discrimination and employment. They wanted maternity leave rights, tax deductions for home and childcare expenses for working parents, increased access to daycare, equal and non-gender segregated education, job training and allowances for women in poverty, and most crucially, an equal rights amendment and reproductive rights. For most of the 1960s, feminists were focused on gaining momentum as a movement and using new civil rights legislation to establish women's rights, especially in the workplace. But by the late 1960s and early 70s, the tide was turning and there were a few landmark victories or near victories that kind of make up the apex of second wave feminism. In 1968, Shirley Chisholm was elected and became the first black woman in Congress. She alone introduced more than 50 pieces of legislation focused on racial and gender equality, and she co-founded the National Women's Political Caucus. In courtrooms, lawyers like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, co-founder of the Women's Rights Project at the ACLU, were challenging gender discrimination in the workplace. But 1972 was really a big year for second wave feminists. Congress passed the education amendments, most notably Title IX, which prohibited sex discrimination in any educational program or activity that was receiving federal financial assistance. All of a sudden, girls had increased access to educational opportunities both in the classroom and in extracurriculars like sports that became protected by law. This coincided with a lot of prestigious universities opening their doors to female students for the first time. Yale first accepted women as undergrad students in 1969. Harvard was one year later in 1970. And by the end of the decade, by the end of the 1970s, the majority of college students were women. But also at the beginning of 1972, it looked like now would have their greatest victory. In March, Congress passed a new constitutional amendment known as the Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA. It stated, quote, Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. This one sentence would strengthen the case of anyone arguing that they were facing discrimination on the basis of their sex, which again, the Supreme Court has now recently clarified also includes sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, this isn't a government podcast, but for a quick refresher, the Constitution and the Supreme Court's interpretation of it is the ultimate decider of most things civil rights. A federal law, like the Civil Rights Act, is the next best thing, but laws can be overturned or amended much more easily than the Constitution can. So although many even still argue that we don't need an ERA because, you know, other parts of the Constitution and laws seem to cover it, I don't know. I think it's fairly clear in 2022 that that's not always the case. It may seem symbolic, which I would argue it's not even today. It definitely wasn't symbolic in 1972. For example, like women weren't guaranteed the right to open a bank account nationwide until two years later, 1974. For God's sake, there wasn't a woman's restroom off the Senate floor until 1993. Like, congresswomen weren't allowed to wear pants in Congress until 1993. I was five. So the ERA passed both houses of Congress pretty easily, evidence of the strength of the feminist movement by the early 1970s. And now it just needed to be ratified by 38 state legislatures. By 1979, they only needed three more states. But by that point, opposition to the ERA had grown thanks to a rising conservative movement and a charismatic political activist named Phyllis Schlafly. Again, giving you one more chance, you really should just go watch Mrs. America on Hulu. 
But for now, just know that Phyllis Schlafly was an incredibly intelligent woman. Her specialty was nuclear treaties, but no one ever wanted to talk to her about that. She built a powerful coalition of women who were afraid that the growing feminist movement was going to take away their hard-earned privilege. And I'm not saying that facetiously. Many housewives had sacrificed a lot in exchange for protection within the established patriarchy. It was incredibly difficult to be a woman without a man in the mid-20th century. You often couldn't control your own money or get loans for homes or businesses. It was hard to find a job that paid enough to support a family. All the issues that pushed some women into the feminist camp also pushed others further into the cult of domesticity, the protection and security of, quote, knowing your place and focusing on the home. So Phyllis Schlafly targeted these women and convinced them that the ERA was going to take away any protections they might have as women. Literally, her organization was called Stop ERA, which stood for Stop Taking Our Privilege, ERA. I mean, you gotta admit, it's pretty cute. Like, the questions they had were, could our daughters now get drafted to go to Vietnam? What about special laws that right now privileged mothers on issues of child custody? Am I going to be expected to go out and get a job and then still come home and do all the housework too? Now, we'll get back to this group in a future episode because they form a core of mostly white women who become politically active as conservatives, a base that will help Republicans win national elections from Reagan all the way through Trump in 2016, and I mean based on the midterm elections up to today. So by the end of 1979, five states had rescinded their support, and by the 1982 deadline, the ERA was done. It was dead in the water. Honestly, one of the reasons why public opinion toward the ERA might have turned mid-1970s was because of another, more controversial, feminist victory, Roe v. Wade. Now, I did an entire episode in Season 2 about the history of abortion rights and Roe v. Wade. For now, just know that Roe was incredibly controversial from the moment it was decided. The Supreme Court used an earlier precedent from Griswold v. Connecticut in 1965 that had established a right to marital privacy when it came to contraception. Basically, the court had decided that the decision to use birth control was a private decision that should be protected, in that case, for married couples. Roe v. Wade then extended that protection to abortions. They affirmed that states could not, for the most part, regulate abortion during the first three months of pregnancy, but state regulations could be put in place a little more easily in the second, and then states could outright ban abortions in the third trimester. I'm going to be totally honest here. Roe was a huge judicial leap, especially in the 1970s. Like, abortion was still banned in more states than not when the decision was handed down. So it wasn't like the sweeping decision that protected same-sex marriage, for example, that was kind of confirming what a majority of states had already decided. It was a massive victory for the feminist movement, but it also faced immediate backlash. And to some extent, it fueled the growing conservative movement that had been kind of weak until recently. Between school integration, the anti-war movement, and now protected abortions, many believed the country had just completely lost sight of its morality. And I want to note, Roe was decided early into Nixon's second term in office, so like clearly the conservative movement was already growing strong. I don't want to give anyone the impression that Roe was any more mobilizing than like civil rights, but it did bring in a different demographic. People who were maybe on board with racial equality, but drew the line at killing babies from their perspective. Okay. So we're seeing some pretty radical victories for the civil rights movement and also the feminist movement, but we're also, I'm continuously foreshadowing this growing conservative backlash. 
But I also want to pause and mention that there are obviously so many rights movements I left out. For practical reasons, I focused this episode on Black civil rights and second wave feminism, but these movements in many ways opened the floodgates or existed alongside other important movements as well. Like Latina Americans found their voice through labor leaders like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, and also civil rights legal activists like Dr. Hector P. Garcia. Garcia, by the way, was a graduate of the University of Texas at Austin, and he won many court cases, including an early one against a funeral home that literally refused to hold a funeral for a World War II veteran because he was Mexican-American. Oh my god. By the way, that soldier was eventually honored with burial in Arlington National Cemetery. Indigenous Americans had their own branch of the civil rights movement, too, bringing attention to discrimination and terrible conditions on reservations. I'm going to do a whole Patreon episode on my favorite protest movement of all time, the indigenous occupation of Alcatraz Island. So go join my Patreon, Anti-Social Studies, if you want to hear that episode right now. And I'm going to talk more in future episodes about how the 1960s were also the birth of a truly organized LGBTQ movement. The Stonewall Riots occurred in 1969. I have a whole YouTube video all about that event that was really kind of based on a great episode of one of my favorite podcasts, You're Wrong About. I promise I'm going to do a deep dive into the LGBTQ rights movement soon, but just know it's gaining traction in this era as well. So this is where I'll leave us for today. The 1960s and early 70s have been a chaotic three episodes full of war, controversy, and amazing success in the field of basic human rights. But as I've already previewed a bit, conservative backlash began brewing with each liberal success. And next episode, we'll finally move forward into the Nixon years. To be continued. As always, thank you for listening and thank you for your support. Please, especially if you're a teacher, go check out the Choices program, choices.edu. Use the code ANTI-SS for a 15% discount on your purchase. Their resources are amazing and you will use them year after year. Again, if you want to support this podcast, go to patreon.com slash antisocialstudies or just share this podcast with anyone else you think would love it. Thanks.